Welcome, and thank you for listening today. This Caregiver Life podcast focuses on caregivers from all walks of life. Throughout the episode, we will hear from caregivers on the front line, those who do the day-to-day, sometimes hour-to-hour caregiving. We will also hear from care recipients, professionals in the field of caregiving, and other various topics of interest to those living this caregiver life. Okay. Hi, Jen. Hi, Mayor. How are you? I'm good. You're post-vacation. I am. It was a long vacation, too. Nine days. Nine days? Mm-hmm. Okay, not for nothing, but it felt a lot longer for me on this end. <laughs> I did travel a few time zones away and did my best to unplug. Good for you. I think that's the most important thing. That was Roxana's thing, remember? Our guest, Roxana Delgado. Yep, it was good advice. And I can definitely, now that I'm on the other side, see Roxana's points in action in my own life. I've uh, definitely had a mindset reset and feel not necessarily refreshed, but um, I feel pointed in the right direction. Oh, good. Do you have um, a better feel for how you're looking at 2020, the year 2020 for yourself? So much. i Highly recommend if you can taking a break at the end of the year and if you can do it before the holidays like I did even better because I was able to still come back and have this time now where I can experience Christmas and New Year's something that I've been looking forward to but I'm looking forward to 2020 um, putting efforts and energy into some projects that I'm very passionate about including this caregiver life and also expanding my my speaking career um, in some new directions. Well, and I, I don't know, maybe, you know, we have new listeners. You never know who's checking us out today. Can you share a little bit about your job as a speaker with us? Sure. Um, I am a staff speaker at Wounded Warrior Project. My title is spokesperson, and I'm on something called the Warrior Speak Team. And I speak to audiences across the country. There's seven members of our team, and we all pretty much do the same thing. Anyone can request us. Some of my favorite speaking engagements are at schools, but I also speak in retirement communities to rotary clubs, big national conventions. Um, I speak to the media, to Congress, so you name it, that's part of my job and I love it. Um, but I've got some exciting ideas to make it even, uh, even better this year. One of the things that um, I share with my audiences is my experience as a caregiver for a combat wounded veteran, my family's experience while he was deployed, and I also share some tactics that everybody can use in their life to increase communication with their loved ones. Um, I've suffered severe depression and anxiety and had suicide ideation and wasn't even comfortable talking to my my family and friends about what I was going through. Um, Thankfully, someone intervened on my behalf and got me some help, and that's what I share with my audiences, how they can be that someone to someone in their life. So um, I'm excited about taking it to a new level next year. So you don't have to be um, your, the organization that has you come and speak. They don't have to be a military or veteran centric organization. It could be a support group. Could it be support groups? Oh yes. I've, I've spoken to a lot of um, 
caregiver retreats, um, weekend workshops, writing workshops. I am an author, as you are, and that's also one of my passions. But um, I also speak to corporations, staff meetings. Um, I do a lot of speaking at, during Suicide Awareness Month, Mental Health Awareness Month, and um, just in general, audiences are interested in hearing from someone who's experienced some tough times and what they did to get out of it. So it's motivational speaking, I, I think, I hope. I tell a few jokes, um, and I give everybody a call to action at the end that we can all do um, to help improve our relationships. Well, I don't know how anybody else feels, but I'm really grateful somebody intervened. Oh, thank you, Mayor. A really, really time in your life because you really matter. You're you're an important person in my life, and you give so much to the caregiving community. Aside from your family, the time and effort you give to your family, you give so much to the caregiving community at large, not just the military veteran caregiver community. You have experience caring for your mom. You have experience caring for your grandma. And a lot of the day-to-day -day caregiving is whether it's because you have a wounded warrior, an injured warrior, or a disabled veteran like uh, like my guy's home. It's caregiving. It's hard. It's hardcore caregiving at times. And that we hope that that's what we're presenting for people who listen to our podcast. That they can pull something from each one of the podcasts and apply it to their life, or it helps them feel less alone and frustrated. Yeah, if you're a caregiver listening, know that you're not alone and that um, we have like experiences and we hope that what we share helps you through your day and we hope it helps you make connections with other people in your life. And if you're not a caregiver and you're listening, we hope that the education you get from this podcast um, makes you support those that you know who are caregivers a little bit better, maybe helps you provide inroads for them to employment or for a respite. And maybe you just realize that your neighbor needs a lasagna, <laughs> you know, because you listen to us and you know that sometimes it's hard just to get dinner on the table. Or somebody just sit on your porch with you. That's what Marjorie Pennington, who we interviewed in our first season, said that in one of our group messages was, what would she, the question to us as caregivers was, what would you like for your neighbors to be able to do? How could they help you? And Margie said, sitting on, on the front porch with me for a little while and just spending time with me is enough. I don't need anything else other than a little bit of company that's not doing the things that I'm doing every day as a caregiver. Yeah, absolutely. I have a couple coworkers at Wind Wear Project who will walk, just walk with me during their break just to talk about anything, talk about what's on sale at Target or talk about uh, what we're cooking for dinner, just just to spend time with me that doesn't have to do with caregiving. Yeah, that's a beautiful thing when people can do that. So if people are wondering what they can, how they can help caregivers out, just giving a little bit of their time, which costs us nothing to give a little bit of time is, you know, is really such a, a rewarding experience for both parties involved. Well, I also wanted to talk, I had a couple of things I, I think we can touch on. We can touch on a little, uh, what season three will be like, but what we what we have in mind for this career over life for the next season, the next few podcasts. Um, but more importantly, I thought we would talk a little bit about Christmas. Is it two thousand four? Is that the yes. year? Two thousand four. That changed the dynamics and the emotions and the stress levels for holidays forever for your family. 
Um, and so I'm, I'm just gonna leave you to tell the story and not interrupt or ask any questions because you're so good at being able to share that information and share that story. It's powerful. Get some tissues ready if you're listening. Well, the backstory to what happened in December 21st, 2004 um, really started a few years before that. I was a young single mom raising my baby, my son Grant, and was presented with the unique opportunity, that's a really nice way to say this, um, of taking in my younger teenage brother, James, and becoming his legal guardian and raising him through high school. I na naively accepted that um, role and did absolute very best that I could to be his parent. Um, I was 25, 26 at the time, and I have to tell you, that's tough. Um, you know, I'm 13 years older than James, and so I didn't really even know about raising a baby, let alone raising a teenager. But we, we tried, the three of us tried really hard um, to, you know, become a successful family. He worked really hard to get his grades up and to go to school. He was on the football team, which he dearly loved. And I worked really hard to keep food on the table and pay daycare. And it was tough times. I made just enough money that we couldn't get free lunch or free school books. Um, you know, I made just enough money that we got by. And we did, we got by. And by the end of his senior year, it was, you know, really clear that he was not interested in going to college yet. Um, and, you know, there really are few options at 18 for earning money and sustaining yourself in this country. You know, the trades are not promoted. That might have been a great path for my brother. I knew nothing about how to maybe get him um, interested in the trades, you know, becoming a welder, becoming a plumber. Very happy to say my son now is employed in HVAC and doing well. but. You know, 20 years ago, I had no idea how any of that worked. So I suggested that my brother take a look at the military. And he thought that was a good idea. And he started visiting with recruiters and, you know, kind of putting together a loose plan. He told me that he was going to decide sort of late in his senior year what, what he was going to do. But on September 11th, um, 2001, we all and you know everything stopped in our country everybody that was in high school at the time my brother was a senior they watched the events of 9-11 happen on television and then I remember he came home from school because football practice was canceled and he said you know Jen I, I want to join the army infantry I want to go fight the good fight and you know we didn't know who the good fight was against that day uh, but I, I knew that he was convicted to serve and his school knew it too. He made it very clear to them what his intent was. And they actually paved the way for him to graduate early so that he could get right to Fort Benning to boot camp. He skipped prom and graduation ceremony and you know all the habits of seniors in high school. Um, but there was one thing that stood in his way. And that was my signature because he was only 17 and I was his legal guardian. So I actually went with him to the recruiter's office to sign the enlistment papers, something that has weighed on me very heavily ever since. Um, I didn't take it lightly, even though I said I was naive and young. I, I didn't take it lightly. I, I felt like I asked all the right questions. I, 
I knew by that time about Saddam Hussein and what was happening in Iraq and what our government stance was and what was happening in the UN. I educated myself on that. I knew a little bit about Afghanistan. I didn't think that either of those things would last more than a year or two. And here we are. I think we're recording this today on the 18th anniversary of the of the inse the official inception of the Afga of the war in Afghanistan. Um, Operation Enduring Freedom seems to be enduring and enduring, and it's now the longest war in our history. But at the time, I didn't see that as happening, and so I signed the enlistment papers. I thought I'm helping my brother have a good future. And that's, I think, what a lot of parents think when their loved ones enlist and they want, want their children to have prosperity, benefits, you know, chance to learn something. And so my brother joined the infantry. It was very um, magical almost. The, the pomp and circumstance of an infantry graduation cannot I mean, you can't even describe it. There's smoke and explosions and guys in ghillie suits crawling out of the weeds and all the proud families are sitting in the bleachers and they're playing patriotic music and there are generals there and other officers and veterans and it's just an amazing opportunity. And your, and your new infantryman has worked so hard. You know, they've climbed Sand Hill through the barbed wire and they've, they've done it all and um, I couldn't have been prouder, and I know your son was in the infantry, and so you you know you know what it's like. Um, I'm envisioning all of those. I you know it's so clear the way you describe it, the graduation. Yeah, and I honestly I don't know if it's changed. I haven't been to Benning in a long time, but when you arrive, you climb these bleachers that we are about 150 years old. You're pretty sure they were there during the war of the Northern oppression. And you're sitting on these decrepit bleachers with thousands of people and you're just in the, in just oppressive heat, just blistering heat that at least for us, it was in July. So it was just as hot and humid as Georgia could be. And I, I remember thinking, boy, I sure hope these bleachers don't, don't collapse underneath the bus. That was my big, big worry at the time. I did have a bigger concern that day. And my brother knew it. Um, he's always been able to sense in me when something is wrong. And I remember at, you know, during the family day and the visitation, he made all these little jokes, like, at my expense to try to lighten the mood. He's always used humor as a coping tactic. And he said things like, oh, Jen, you know, the food here is the best food I've ever had. And I invested a lot of money and time in feeding that teenager, you know. <laughs> and then he said, the drill instructors are really nice. They remind me, they're just like you. <laughs> and I knew, I knew what he was doing, though. He, you know, they spent a lot of time talking to those new recruits in 2001, early 2002 about, about war, you know, and what was coming down the pipeline for them. And, and true to form, sure enough, my brother and, and his unit, which was based out of Fort Lewis, Washington, a, a Deuce Four Striker Combat Brigade, was sent to Mosul, Iraq in the fall of 2004. And they experienced some of the heaviest losses of any um, battalion during the war in Iraq. And they also, um, they had 181 Purple Hearts. It was 
uh, just to put into perspective um, the similar similar casualty numbers to a to their unit um, that their unit suffered in Vietnam of just horrific you know dozens of men killed and lots of days where we couldn't talk on the computer where we couldn't text each other on the computer because the communications home were blacked out until they could notify the families and I remember a lot of conversations that were really just centered around you know Jamie trying to get me to send flowers to you know a young man's funeral on his behalf and just really hard times and some of the hardest times came around Christmas and that's why we're talking about this today um I had moved, I had my computer in my bedroom because of the time change so that if James came online to use Yahoo Instant Messenger, I could hear that ding, mm -hmm. no, you know, whether it was night or day. Um, they did missions around the clock. And you and I were talking about your son's service. I mean, there were days when they did more than one mission. There were missions that would last days on end where they would be off of the base, off of the FOB in Mosul. FOB Merez is where he was most of the time. And they would be out in the city of Mosul, which arguably was the most dangerous city on the planet at that time. And, um, you know, we wouldn't know what, what we would see the news. I would have the news on all the time that back then the news was 24 seven on CNN, you know, wow. and um, I could even see, I remember, um, you know, you would see like, news report about striker soldiers in Mosul and that was my brother's unit because they were the only only ones there at that time but on December 21st of 2004 I decided I gotta go to town I gotta I gotta do all the mom things I need to go buy some gifts and get a turkey and um, I can remember hearing you know Christmas carols and being at the mall I remember loading up my groceries and in the Kroger parking lot and, and driving home and I got a text message from my friend Patty Donahue. And it was really kind of short. She just said, was I at home? And I said, no. And she said, call me when you get there. And so I kind of thought, you know, maybe something's going on. I don't really know. And then when I got home, I turned on the news and I learned that something terrible had happened on the other side of the planet. A suicide bomber had walked into a mess hall, which is a, a cafeteria, a military cafeteria, and had detonated himself. But uh, it was, became quickly apparent that it wasn't just a mess hall. It was where my brother was getting his three squares every day. It was on um, FOB Merez in Mosul, Iraq. And... I called my friend Patty. I got online. There was an online support group for striker families and tried to get information. There was no, no word from my brother, no messages unread. We started getting emails from the family readiness group and phone calls on like a phone tree, mm -hmm. um, just saying they didn't have any information and then that there was information, there were casualties. Um, that there were casualties in the battalion. There were casualties, um, there were deaths, there were people were wounded. Um, you know, stay by your phone. Make sure you know where your passport is. 
in case you have to go to land to war. They were evacuating the casualties, different places. And there were four photos that ended up on the news. There was a, jur a journalist or two in the mess hall, and they managed to get a couple of pictures before they were removed by command. Um, and so I did see a couple of photos, and we can share them on the on our Facebook page. We can share some of the um, information about the attack that happened. Um, and that was it. But I, I knew it was my brother's unit because in the photos, you could see that patch on the left arm, the unit insignia. And my brother's unit has, you know, a very distinctive one. They all do. It's a, it's a heart with a, a lightning bolt through the middle. They call it the electric strawberry. I don't know why they don't want to call it a heart. But um, anyway, I don't remember much about the next few days, but just spending a lot of time praying and being really scared that um, my, my doorbell was going to ring. We, you know, I got some phone calls. I made the obligatory phone calls um, to immediate family, even though we weren't close. You know, I did call my parents or our parents to let them know. Um, closer to my dad at that time, you know, and he was sitting vigil as well, even though we don't live in the same state. And really just terrified. I, I remember looking out my front window and at that time, online shopping was just becoming new. And now I don't know a caregiver that can live without online shopping. You right. know, I just today ordered some stuff that's sitting at Target waiting for me to pick it up right now. Mm -hmm. And, um, but because it had blossomed sort of that year for the first time, the delivery companies were using those rented vans, just those like big box vans to take packages to the neighborhoods. And mm -hmm. that's the same kind of van like that I had always seen the government driving, you know. And I just imagine like, oh my gosh, are they in uniform? Are they coming in my driveway, you know? And we eventually got word late Christmas Eve, so it was really the end of the fourth day. Um, you know, first I got, we got word that all the families had been notified, and I hadn't been notified. And I did get a brief message from my my brother, you know, just saying um, he was okay. He was slightly hurt in the attack, but he was okay, and they had been out on missions, and they were trying to get the people who were responsible, and um, he was very sad because killed in the attack were, you know, people that he loved. I, I remember reading the email that came from the family readiness group and um, I scanned through the names, you know, and I remember just being so selfishly happy that James, you know, that specialist James Smith wasn't on that list. And then just heartbroken because I knew, I knew the names, you know, I knew I'd sent care packages to some of these young men who, you know, my brother had gotten to know and love and my brother's captain was killed, Captain Bill Jacobson. He had four children. He was from North Carolina. And he wasn't just a father to those four kids. He was a father to every, you know, every man, especially the single men. And he would bring his kids in to play, you know, to play ping pong or foosball in the barracks and you know, his wife would send cookies for the guys and just really loved those men and 
really gave them the father that they needed when they first got to combat and started experiencing, you know, loss and started having to do things that you and I can't contemplate doing, you know, things that happen during war. And we changed a lot that day. You know, my brother um, became kind of terse with me in those Yahoo instant messages. And it's something that actually Patty and I, we wrote a book called Friends for Life, Strangers Brought Together by the War in Iraq because we were strangers before the war and we became friends because she was the mother of the medic. Her son, John, was the medic in my, in my brother's um, platoon. And we wrote about the change in that book. And the thing that I remember really the most is that I didn't have anywhere to place my grief. There was absolutely no one in my neighborhood that understood what I was going through. You know, I remember crying during Christmas service at church, just uncontrollable crying. When other people are being so happy and celebrating the holiday and excited to be with their families. And I, I wasn't. Um, I went through the motions with my son between the 21st and the 24th. You know, I remember we assembled a gingerbread house and there's a picture of me and him putting icing on this gingerbread house. And I just looked like a zombie because I couldn't connect. And that was really the beginning of some pretty severe anxiety and depression for me that I still struggle with today. And the result of all of that is that, well, first, my brother didn't really want to celebrate Christmas, right? After that, who, who would? Um, and I, I really struggled with it too, even though my son was still really young, I really struggled with trying to be happy on this day that we're supposed to be happy, right? Celebrate the birth of Jesus and family and, you know, all, all that I could connect with was just the memory of loss. And so we really stopped celebrating Christmas. Um, almost completely. In fact, my ex-husband, um, I was married at the time and he, he was on board with stopping and we left town every year during the Christmas holiday. We would go to Florida and use his points from his work travel and just skip Christmas. He had read the book Skip Christmas. That movie came out, Skipping Christmas, and he thought that was a really great idea. And honestly, you know, I did too. Just get away from it all. My brother was, you know, um, he, he would detach himself from us to, to deal with those feelings. And, and well, we talked about this earlier. He would seem, uh, we were talking about an, another veteran, but another service member, but he would seem uninterested in us or the mm -hmm. conversation or the meal or the event. Um, and he, he was not well. My brother was wounded um, later in the war, later during that deployment. And, and so, you know, he didn't care about Christmas. I didn't care about Christmas. We just skipped it. 
And I've realized since then that um, that really wasn't healthy. I really enjoyed growing up. My grandparents were very, um, very religious, and we celebrated Christmas, um, a faith-based Christmas, but with cookies and food and also just in fellowship with our family, but also with other people and giving back in the community. And, um, and I love all of that. And I, by skipping it to try to protect myself, I prevented myself from some healthy recovery from that horrific day um, that I'm always going to remember. And I can never change what happened at Christmas in Mosul. I can never bring back those men for their families. And I'm never going to bring our family back to that naive place where we were when I you know, took James in. Um, but what I can do is try to make new memories do new things. I remember when we talked to Lara Gary about Christmas, you know, one of the things that she said was that she's trying to make some new memories. So she has traditions from when her husband was healthy before he had ALS, and now they have some traditions, some new things that they've done while he has ALS, and they can pull from both of those after he's gone. We know ALS is a terminally ill disease her husband will die everyone with ALS is fatal and I really I've, I really felt inspired by Lara and her story when we talked to her and so um, I'm putting my tree up I put oh, this good. I put a tree up last year and I have a little rescue dog and she guarded it it was the most precious thing in our home apparently that we must protect from burglars so she she's a malinois mix a little belgian malinois and so she she guarded it last year i'm sure she'll do the same thing this year um i'm going to spend um a couple of days with my boys my brother has a tree with lights on it um first time and he's buying gifts and we're gonna really try to do it <laughs> you're gonna do it in your way though i don't remember what's gonna work for you it's such a um such a powerful experience that you guys had and the families that lost their loved ones that's always going to be with them and that tragedy is always with you guys and there's no getting around it maybe that's the message that it is a tragedy and it is always going to be with you. And it's okay that it's always with you. That's okay to begin to find a new way. It's taken a lot of years for you guys. It's, that was 2004. Is that 15 years? 15 years. Yeah, it's 15 years. My brother is, you know, a, a grown man. I think about him at the time. He was 20. And how young he was to experience those things and to to lose that that part of your life when you're growing up um you know we talk about the excitement of christmas morning mm -hmm. you know that kids feel and i i don't know that you know there are a few times in your life when you feel that um and it's i don't know that he's able to feel that kind of excitement in his life now because of what happened because of the bombing or or a combination of because of his injury he does have a traumatic brain injury 
Yeah, and his so I think it's both, and his traumatic brain injury occurred. Well, let's let's be. I'll try to not be graphic, but you know, my brother was thrown from his feet during the mess hall attack. He was in there. Um, that's probably something important uh, to say. His guys were they were having lunch, mm-hmm. and uh, in fact, my brother had just set his tray down at the table, and did something quite remarkable before the attack. Um, He also did a lot of things remarkable after the attack. You know, he gave life-saving aid to men and and helped evacuate them. And then they went out into the city, you know, to find, to try to find people who are responsible. Mm -hmm. Um, But before, as he sat his lunch tray down, um, a friend of his went to go get some cake (laughs) And my brother went, turned and went back to the door of the mess hall where the hand washing station was. And what's, that's not remarkable. It's not remarkable to wash your hands before you eat. Many caregivers wash their hands dozens of times every day. Mm-hmm. But my 20-year-old brother, I never saw him wash his hands before he ate. Not without a reminder. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's just one of the bad habits that I inherited him with. Hmm. But he did that day. And you know, it saved his life. And I think he lives with uh, survivor's guilt. You know, why did he live? And Captain Jay, who had so many other people counting on him, you know, why was he taken? I don't think James has found that answer yet. Um, And for me, I've done the best that I could to try to, I don't, not coddle him, but try to comfort him. It's, there is no good way to comfort somebody who's been through something like that. There's no prescription. There's no formula. Um, listening to my brother share his story has been as cathartic as anything. Um, he is doing his best to live a, the best life that he can, knowing that men he loved were, are not able to, that their lives were taken from them. Mm-hmm. And so that's where our focus is. And it's not, he's, that's not fixable for him. The memory isn't fixable. The experience isn't fixable. And for, for people who try to fix those kinds of situations or make light of them, hurt the situation more. Yeah. It's okay that some things aren't fixable. I mean, we don't like it. We don't like that we have to live with that. But it's okay for him. He, the acceptance of that is probably huge for him that you accept that he does feel that way and you accept that you're not going to ask him to participate in the festivities of Christmas when he doesn't feel up to it. It's an unfair expectation of him. And how many men lost their lives that day? Um, 14 service members were killed. Dozens were wounded. How suicide after that? So there have been... Um, 30. 30 suicides. Yeah. It's an astounding number. That I, that I know of. That I know of, yeah. They, and, and they lost 44 men in combat. So in total, they lost, so they lost 44 men in combat in addition to the 14 in the mess hall? Including. Including. Including the ones they lost in the mess hall. 74 men who have lost their lives. That's such a huge burden to carry. Mm-hmm. 
for not just the service members, but for you as well as a loved one, as, as his caregiver, but even more than that, right? Cause we don't, I mean, you know, the term caregiver is, it's almost overused sometimes, right? Like, well, I've been yeah. asked about being a caregiver, like, you know, so how do you do it? How are you as caregiver? Well, but okay, but I'm his wife. Like, he's my partner in life. He's my guy for my whole life. And there'll never be anybody like him for me again the whole rest of my life once he dies from this crappy disease. And I couldn't think of doing anything else other than doing what I do. If somebody wants to call it a caregiver, have at it. I'm a caregiver, I guess. But it's because I love him and he's my family member. And that's what it is for James, for you and you for James is you love him and he loves you and he's your family member and his heart hurts. So whether you're curious or not is it's really irrelevant. It's kind of, it's kind of like a bandaid on the whole thing. It's, it almost has gave us, gave us a reason to not address the mess hall attack for a long time because you know, we're triaging so many other things and so many years, you know, of these 15 years, I can't tell you how many of them my brother was recovering from surgery during, during the holidays or um, experiencing, you know, some distress related to his disabilities. And so that's almost been, you know, almost been like a scapegoat. Now I will say last year we did drive around and look at Christmas lights. Did you like that? <laughs> he wasn't that into it. Wasn't that into it? So but he, yeah, he agreed, and we tried it. And maybe this year he's going to be into it. Maybe, yeah. Or maybe he still won't be into it. Maybe and I'm okay with that. Maybe he'll like some Christmas cookies. He will like that. See, he there will. you go. Just find he out will. what works, you know. I need to get Roxana's recipe. We should ask her for it and publish it on our Facebook page. Oh, let's do that because that's she made her cookies recently. Did you see that on our Facebook yeah. page? So her cookies cheer up her husband when he's feeling down. Yeah, and she only does it once a year. She only makes cookies once a year. That's it. That's all you get. That's all you get is once a year. So you got to eat them up and enjoy them, you know. Well, what? so what, you know, if you somebody asked you for some guidance, you know, I think advice is kind of a weird thing to ask, right? So our situations are also different. But what, if somebody asked you for guidance based on reflecting on your experience, how – how would you guide them to maybe be mindful for Christmases that are rough? Like, how do you, how do you get over it? I don't think you can get over it. So that's really a bad term, but I think you know where I'm going. Yeah. So I think first we can all sort of just be respected. Everybody has a different experience. Um, if you're in the office and you're having a secret Santa or a pitch in and there's somebody there um, and you're like, Oh, you haven't signed up for the secret Santa yet. And, you know, you've given them that general reminder. Maybe they don't want to. Maybe they don't find joy in buying presents. They don't find joy in receiving presents. Maybe they just want to get through the holidays and start the new year. And they just, they cocoon. And that's, that's fine. It doesn't mean that they're unsafe. It doesn't mean that they're unhealthy. It means that that's how they deal with something that they've gone through. I don't, I don't agree with get over it. Mm-hmm. I've had people tell me that or even ask, well, when, when do you think you're going to get over this? You know, when are you, I'm not, I'm not ever going to get over this. I am never going to forget the pain of that day. I'm never going to forget the heartbreak that Christmas reminds me of. Mm-hmm. 
And so don't pressure people around you to partake in the things that you do or the things that bring you joy, right? Mm -hmm. What may bring them joy is putting their energy into something else over the holidays so that they, they don't have to be overwhelmed by those memories. And that's okay. So what would you share? Because I agree. I mean, you can't get over it. I mean, Christmas has never been really quite the same for us and our family either. It's been different for so many reasons. The dynamics are very different in our family. You know, our pre and post, you know, pre-disability, post-disability, very different. Um, but what would you, so we, we kind of, you went over really, you talked really well about what people could avoid putting on somebody who has a struggle at Christmas time. But what can the caregiver say? What what kind of what kind of message can they share without? Because it's, sometimes it's hard not to be rude about it, but yeah. they don't know. Like most people don't know about the Mosul bombing at Christmas, the Christmas bombing in Mosul. Most yeah. people, I know that story. I know it very well because I'm very invested. I was, and my son was home by then, but I knew about that bombing, and I couldn't believe that you became my friend and that you lived through that experience with James because Tom and I knew that very well from our son having just been home from Iraq two months prior, a couple months prior to that. So we were very invested, but what kind of words can, you know, so most people don't know that about you, but so what, what could you, what would you say to people for them to kind of lay off of the expectations? I think, um, one thing that you can say and something that I have said in the past is um, I'm all set this year. I mean, honestly, saying no does not require lengthy definition. And I, I, we published an article that I wrote about saying no. There's kind of an art to it. But you don't have to elaborate when you say no. It's simply enough. Hey, thanks for, thanks for the offer to include me. I'm going to pass this year. I would encourage people to leave themselves open to saying yes in the future because I've done that now the last few years I participated in Secret Santa and it's actually been quite nice. It's been I, I exchanged gifts with my close friends you and I exchanged gifts and, and I like that you know I'm enjoying that. I, I've I want to encourage you to leave the door open to being invited next year but I think you can you could simply say Oh, that sounds so fun. I hope you guys really enjoy that. I'm good. And leave it at that. And you may be good because what you're going to do on Christmas when the office is closed or when you don't have any VA, any medical appointments because all the doctors or offices are closed, you know, you and your care recipient may, may play, you know, 20 games of Yahtzee. And that's how you get through the day. And you, you may not watch the Christmas story. You may not have a Yule log on your TV. Um, you might take your dogs for a walk. It may be something that's not Christmassy at all. And that's fine. And it's and you don't even have to tell people that's what you're doing. I mean, they, they can just imagine that you got to go to Hawaii like I did. Like you did. <laughs> I took you a lot of years to go to Hawaii. So if anybody feels like they want to say, well, lucky you, Jen. <laughs> well, it took me a lot of years to get there. And, and you earned that trip. You know, you you put a lot of work into yourself the last few years, and your career is fantastic. So, 
you know, it's been a long time coming for you to be able to have a vacation like that where you, where you could, you did what you wanted to do for your vacation. I appreciate that. I, it's something that I wanted to do um, for a number of years and I want, but I wanted to do it on my own agenda and um, I wanted it to be my itinerary and that's exactly what it was. And I didn't do it around Christmas. You know, I did it before. So although there were a lot of Christmas decorations and it was very Mele Kalikimaka, um, <laughs> as the Hawaiians say, um, it, it wasn't a full immersion, you know, in the holiday. Um, I'm got an interesting, you know, year coming up in 2020 and I want to end this one good. So I'm glad that you asked me to talk about the mess hall because, you know, it's coming up here in a few days. It was the um, largest attack um, on a U.S. base at the time and the largest loss of life. I, I, I also want to, to mention the loss of civilian life. Um, I don't know that there was ever a tally released by the Department of Defense. I don't believe there was. I haven't been able to find it of the civilians that were wounded. but and killed, but there were cooks and mm -hmm. uh, bus boys and janitors and, and, and staff, um, locals, not just uh, so Iraqis and also uh, people that they brought in from, from Thailand and the Philippines who were, who were working there to support our service members. And so um, their loss is not, not forgotten either. But I feel like I'm getting to that point 15 years later where I can balance the, the holiday and my old memories and my, and, you know, as Lara sort of said, the, the, the traditions, the pre-traditions and now the post-traditions. And we, we don't, we know we're making new ones. We're making new ones. And um, whatever happens 15 years from now, I hope I look back at this time in my life and say, this is when I decided to tear down that wall for myself and this is when I decided to say yeah you know what I want to be in the secret Santa I wanna, yeah I want to give somebody joy by buying them a gift oh and heck it's kind of cool to get one yourself mm -hmm. it, is. And, it is fun to do that but yeah. I didn't do that this year except I did do it with the fellows but I didn't do it in the other group we're in I don't I'm, I'm struggling this year with Christmas and it's okay I'm respecting that for you I I haven't asked you about it or you've been through a lot this year your caregiving role doubled because you had to take care of your mother who became suddenly um in need of caregiving and tom has gotten worse this year um he's progressed a lot with his als and he's been very sick and had surgery and you just need need a minute mm -hmm, i do well thank you for respecting that and i appreciate that it's just been that way. So I did one. I did one very late. I got into the fellows one. Um, and I'm trying to think. Oh, I did get something from the Secret Santa. Um, it's actually very appropriate for me. It's called Birds on the Wire. Have you ever seen that? Bring it across. I love it. Yeah. Lisa was my Secret Santa. Lisa Sternkey. And so to, to know me is to know that's a right gift. And I sent one to my secret Santa, who was Jen Thornton. And I don't know if she listens to us. But I made a, um, an ornament on Shutterfly. I was at the White House with her a few years ago with Hayden. And Tom was with us. And it was Tom's birthday. 
and we were there with the, um, you know, the Dole Foundation had that opportunity where when Obama was president that we could go in, that the, some of the fellows could go in and be part of the media uh, preview of the White House Christmas decorations. And so we were there with Jen. And I have photos because we were pretty up close. Tom and I were pretty up close to Michelle Obama because he's in a wheelchair. Oh. So instead of putting us in the back of the room, we got to, we got close to it. And she adores Michelle Obama. So I made a shuttlefly uh, ornament for her. But she doesn't know it's me. So it'll be fun for her to figure out if she remembers that it was me. So I did have fun with that. And I was glad I did it. And I had lunch with the ladies from yoga today. And, and that kind of lifted me up and out of the doldrums a little bit. That's really nice because they don't, they're, one of them is a caregiver and she's going to come on, on, the, on our podcast in the spring, which would, so this will be this into season three conversation. Um, but it's mostly not that it's mostly not caregiving talk. And that's really good for me. And that's a, a great piece to share with caregivers is finding others that are outside of your caregiver tribe is really can be very helpful well also i want to say for our listeners if you are outside of the caregiving tribe but you love a caregiver you work with one you know one and you've invited them to do something and they're they're just not that into it they're just not that into you this year don't take it personally just yeah. just respect it for what it is which is them just taking some space um because I, I think that we can easily get offended when people don't accept our invitations or our, you know, our attention. Mm -hmm. and, it, and it's rarely the case that it has anything to do with us. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and That's everything true. to do with them. Everything to do with them. It's so true. Well, I thank you so much for sharing the story with us. It's an important piece of American history as well. It's a way to never forget the men and women who die for us, who serve for us. It puts a different perspective on why Christmas and any holiday or any particular anniversary like Tara's wedding anniversary when she spoke with us and shared that that was the same day as a terrible tragedy in her husband's life when he was serving where they lost men and he was terribly injured. Um, so it puts a different it puts a different light on it, shines a different light on the backstory of why people may not be having a great time at Christmas and it's okay if you're not having a good time and it's okay if you never do. It's just the way it is. So it's a tough, as you know, Tom and I podcasted last week about our Christmas and, and Tom gave a little soliloquy in there about um, not allowing the commercialism of the holidays to impact you in a negative way to make it your own mm -hmm. maybe that's what we'll call this podcast make it your own because that's what you've done and you've done such a good job it's been a long there's there's a lot of years in between 2004 and this year and um a lot of caregiving for james that we can talk about in various other podcasts over time there's you can never talk about it would take hours to talk about it in one podcast you just couldn't do it you'd have to do a series of them because he's had an incredible amount of um, surgeries and um, impact disabilities from hitting that IED. It's just enormous. And he's such a fighter and he, and 
as I stated earlier, he's doing it for the men that couldn't come home. And he's trying so hard to be healthy. Mm-hmm. I, I, I never want to use the word normal. What is that? What is normal anyway? But he's trying so hard to be healthy and um, to be there for the people in his life who've been there for him. To be the best James, you know. Yeah, to, be, to have the best quality of life that he can have. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I just, God bless the Wounded Warrior Project and their independence program, which has him supported during the week. Um, he has a life coach who's, who's helped him, you know, make his list and check it twice. He has purchased gifts for his loved ones, which is beautiful and thoughtful and something that he needs help with. And he's doing it. And I'm so grateful to to that program and, and to that organization. And I'm also grateful to our listeners who I know this is a heavy episode. And I know sometimes the things that we talk about are heavy. They're, they're important. And I, we often don't talk about military caregiving on this caregiving life, on this caregiver life, because we recognize that the caregiving world is so much bigger than just the veteran and military community. But I think it helps it helps us all understand whether the, whether the day that your loved one survived a bombing like mine did, or maybe your loved one was in a car accident and has forever been changed by their injuries. Um, we have, we have a lot of shared experiences and I hope this podcast makes you feel supported and understood. And I hope that you feel free to reach out to us. We have email this caregiver life at gmail.com and of course you can leave us comments on our facebook page or instagram or even on twitter so easy to find us um and we want to hear from you we want to hear what you want for 2020 yes what would you like to hear um us talk about or have guests on about for in season three in 2020 we're open to ideas and it could be someone you want us to interview, maybe a topic, a uh, subject you'd like us to cover. And it may just be that you'd like to give us feedback on some, uh, on an episode from this season or last. And we just uh, love to hear that. We have some exciting things planned. And um, we we hope that, um, that you have enjoyed doing this as much as we enjoy doing it for you. Um, I don't know that there's any greater therapy than sharing one's story. So, Mayor, I just want to thank you for giving me that opportunity today. Um, as, a, as a speaker, it's something that I do professionally, regularly, but um, to share it with you and, and our audience in this intimate way, has, it means a lot to me. And so I thank you for that. Well, good. I thank you for sharing it and for trusting us with your story. That's really important. You know, when we share our stories, we have to trust the people we share them with, that they can hear them in the way that we need them to be heard. Yeah. And I think you've always respected the fact that I can't talk about December 21st, 2004 without crying, without, without being emotional. Um, I can talk about a lot of things without being emotional, but that's, it's never going to be the case. And, um, we, we would love to know from our listeners, you know, what is it that makes you emotional and how do you deal with that as a caregiver? You know, a lot for a long time, um, I, tried to protect my, my brother from those feelings that I was having. And, um, 
it's important that he he know how impacted I was and and so that's also been part of our journey is, is me just sharing with him you know how devastating that has been on my life and always will be and it's something that we share even though we were on other sides of the planet when he was there and I I wasn't uh, but we share that experience so maybe um, if I were going to leave our listeners with one last thought it would be that your that it, the care recipient shares that experience with you it's from a, a different perspective it's 180 degrees away but it's the same experience and so if you're getting frustrated or you're trying to be protective or you're trying to control the situation just remember that you know they own half of it with you that's a good message to leave behind you're in it together and you're better together yep, that's right right all right, Jen. Till the next time. Till next time, Mayor. Mm-hmm.